On WealthTrack, a punishing decline in high-flying tech stocks is not preventing top-performing growth fund manager Alex Umansky from doubling down on some of his biggest recent losers. These are good opportunities. You need them. You need them in order to allocate capital at more attractive prices. He'll explain why on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. When you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, what are you? What do you do when your flagship fund goes from the top of its class to close to the bottom in a matter of weeks, from market trouncing to market lagging? That is the question facing this week's guest. He is Alex Umansky, portfolio manager of the Barron Global Advantage Fund, which he launched at the firm of legendary growth fund manager Ron Barron in 2012. Umansky oversees about $2.4 billion in assets at Barron Capital, including $1.8 billion at his flagship Global Advantage Fund. Now entering its 10th year, Global Advantage is known for investing in innovative, disruptive, industry-changing growth companies around the world frequently spotting them early, some when they were private. Among its largest holdings are Rivian, Alphabet, Amazon, Shopify, and Zoom Info Technologies. Among its former largest holdings were Facebook, Tencent, and Alibaba, and at one point, Chinese companies made up 22% of the portfolio. Despite the sea change that has affected these holdings, the fund is rated four-star bronze by Morningstar, and just won the 2022 Lipper Award for Best Global Multi-Cap Growth Fund for the five years ended in 2021, and its fourth consecutive year as a top fund in its category for the three-year periods, ending in 2019, 20, and 21. And it has far outpaced the market and its peers with 19% average annualized total returns since inception. However, in mid-November of 2021, the bottom fell out for the majority of its holdings. Global Advantage went from a 20% plus gain to a less than 1% gain by year end, while its benchmark and competition fared much better. So far this year, the fund is down double digits and lagging badly. I asked Umansky, what's changed? So on one hand, everything's changed. On the other hand, nothing's changed. It all depends on your perspective and it depends on your time horizon. Where everything's changed is you have uh, now value in favor over growth, so you have a massive rotation. Energy is the best performing sector in the S&P 500. You have legacy financials that are rallying strong and you have high multiple stocks that are really being used as sources of funds for people that are rotating into the value names. Now, on top of it, you have uh, geopolitical issues. Really started last year with China, where I mean, there was a significant crackdown uh, in, from, from the Chinese regulatory authorities on Chinese tech companies, and of course, extended into the uncertainty and now you know, an actual war between Russia and Ukraine. The way we think about it is when people feel good about themselves, when they feel confident about where they are, they are willing to look out longer term. They're willing to look out three to five years and they're always asking themselves the question, how good can this be, right? If, if things continue to be well, how big can this company get to if things go 
right? At the same time, when you have an environment, when you have fear over greed, uh, your time horizon shrinks, and then everything is about here and now. And when that happens, there, there's no multiple that's low enough, right? It, it's all about what's the free cash flow yield, what is the current valuation, and you know everyone's kind of running through the same door, and the door is never big enough to accommodate you know, all the runners. In terms of what hasn't changed is from our standpoint, you know, the world is cyclical, life is cyclical. You, you have these crises all the time, right? We've had multiple wars before. We had the war with Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, we've had the financial crisis. We had the internet bubble bursting. We had COVID, which in six weeks wiped off, you know, 35% of global market capitalizations. So there's always something out there, right? That's what I mean that everything's cyclical that gives investors pause and forces them to start pricing in tail risks, right? The range of outcomes expands and we're now worried about what can go wrong and how wrong can it really be? And when that happens, like I said, when we feel good about the future, no multiple is high enough. When we feel scared and we're worried about the crisis, whatever crisis it may be, whether it's interest rates, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's commodities, whether it's inflation, you know, then there's no multiple that's uh, low enough, right? So from our perspective, nothing's really changed. Uh, if anything, it actually gives us an opportunity to upgrade the quality of our portfolio. We are long-term investors. We try to make sure that our investors have the same time horizon as we do, that like having that be the right fit is, is critically important. And you know, these are good opportunities. You need them. The, the, you, you need them in order to allocate capital at more attractive prices. And, and tell us, you know, what the right fit means as, as far as somebody who, you know, might be looking at the Barron Global Advantage Fund. So we are the kind of investors that focus on big ideas, on unique competitively advantaged businesses that can be materially larger than they are today. And our time horizon is really forever. We explicitly do not manage for market volatility. Right? And in fact, if you think about it, we don't have many tools to preserve investors' capital. We're not allowed to short stocks. We don't buy convertibles. We don't go to cash. Right? We, we are fully invested at all times. So if you're putting your kids through college and you need to pay tuition in the next six months, we're not the right fit for you. If you're looking to buy a vacation home, if you're looking to retire and start drawing income, we're not the right strategy for that. On the other hand, if you're looking for capital appreciation, if you're looking for the next Amazon, for the next Google, for the next Apple. All right? of which have and, been and, holding And you're looking to invest for five to 10 years, I think we, we are we're a pretty good fit for that. Certainly if I had invested in your fund in 2012, um, when you launched it, uh, that's a good long time, that's 10 years, and, uh, and it's worked out really well. But is it possible that the next 10 years, uh, you know, your kinds of companies uh, will not do as well? I don't think it's very likely, uh, and I can tell you why. So obviously rising cost of capital is a headwind to all equities, right? And growth equities are no exception from that perspective. Right. But 
cost of capital is one variable that goes into the equation. The other variable that we think is critically important is returns on invested capital. And so what we really focus on is the spread between the company's ability to generate high and rising returns on invested capital over the cost of capital. If your cost of capital is 20%, but your return on invested capital is 40%, and there is this meaningful spread, then I would argue that growth will be creating economic value for the business. And majority of the businesses that we invest in have a significant positive spread between returns on invested capital and cost of capital. So rising cost of capital is bad, but it can be offset by companies that are solving real problems, real issues, that are doing things in a more efficient, more effective way. And there's something known as a rule of 40. And the rule of 40 is you look at the growth rate and you look at the profit margin. And when you add the two up, if they are 40 or above, this is considered to be a high quality business. And so you look at some of the leading you know, digital transformation companies today, a company like Shopify, right, which is one of the leading e-commerce players, which by right, the way is want. down 50 or 60% right. um, off, off of its high. And here is a company that last year grew mid-50s and has profit margins of about 10%. So they are in you know, 67, 70% on the rule of 40, which means it's a very high quality business. Right? And then you look at a company like Mercado Libre, which is an e-commerce company in Latin America, and they're actually growing almost 80% a year with 5% profit margin, so they are over 80. And then I mentioned CrowdStrike or Datadog. These are the companies growing in the 70s with mid-20s, close to 30% profit margins, and so they are in like mid-90s on the rule of 40. And then you get to an Adyen or a ZoomInfo or a Snowflake, and they are in triple digits. These are like rule of 110. So yes, rising cost of capital is a headwind, but these companies have plenty of room to continue to create long-term economic value. So their intrinsic values are continuing to rise. What, what have you done with, with the companies that you just mentioned uh, that have been hit really hard in this sell-off uh, in, in growth companies? In general, I'd say there are three categories of stocks are three reasons why stocks got hit. You have your Amazons and your Googles where the fundamentals are solid and both companies are actually going through a 20 for one stock split and their communication to investors has been that business is good, right? We're, we're, we're comfortable, we're confident in our outlook. So these are the companies that are down what I would characterize with the flows, market flows, right? You have more sellers than buyers. People are more worried about today, less, less interested in tomorrow, so they're selling. And that's category one. Category two is companies like a Shopify or a Peloton or a PayPal or a Netflix, where they have had a fundamental hiccup, where you know they were beneficiaries of COVID and work from home, and their growth was pulled in for a couple of years. 2021 were much faster than anyone had anticipated. And now that the economy is reopening and we're kind of getting to a normalized environment, they've had issues, right? So Shopify in particular was growing in you know, 80, 90% range, and then now they grew in the 50s. And they took away guidance and they said, look, we don't know what the base actually is, right? We don't know where the normalized environment is and we have to wait and see. 
and Shopify got hit really hard. Uh, I would put a company like a Facebook into that category because they had a company-specific issue, which is Apple changing its privacy algorithm, and you know, we should probably put TikTok, you know, as as an issue as well. So they're losing some market share um, to competitive pressures, and they have to change their own algorithm, and so that stocks down because there's some specific reasons, right? So all of that is tier two, and then the third category is. The data dogs, the crowd strikes, the cloud flares, the, the, the snowflakes. These are businesses that are reporting sparkling results, right? They have seen no slowdown. If anything, their business is accelerating and they're, they're continuing to do better than we thought they have. And their stocks are down similar 30, 40, 50, in some cases, 60%. So what we have been doing is actually using the first category, which is the Amazons and the Googles and Microsofts and Apples, as a source of funds and reallocating more into the category three where the stocks are down because of multiple contractions. Let's just discuss the category one for a moment. And so, you know, you were early investors in Amazon and Alphabet uh, and also Facebook. Um, you've, you've sold your Facebook position, right? Uh, we actually sold it at the end of last year. So yeah. we, were, we were fortunate to avoid the big, uh, the right. big drop down. And, and again, and, and that was because of a fundamental change in its business, right? That's the reason to sell. Yes. The, the, the main reason to sell was because there was a thesis change, but right. also the correction and the other stocks did start in, in the fourth quarter. And so we, we were looking for things to sell, if you will, right? So we needed sources of cash. Whenever we bring in either new ideas or if we want to buy more of something that we have, existing names typically use the sources of funds. So we've been worried about Facebook for a while. And at the end of last year, we sold it so that we could start reallocating capital into the names that were getting hit. Yes. And you no longer own Apple. That's correct. Apple was used as a source of funds earlier, probably about a year and a half to two years earlier. Yes. Right. And, um, and then, so Amazon and Alphabet. Those two, we believe, are still big ideas. Uh -huh. and in fact, both are you know, two of our top holdings. So we think of all investments in one of two categories. It's either a big idea or it's a holder of value, right? And there's absolutely nothing wrong with the holder of value. It's just not, not what the Barron Global Advantage Fund is all about. We have a return right. hurdle rate, which is very high. And we are willing to take a fair amount of risk, especially market risk, in order to achieve that return hurdle rate. So the, the, the future is in the category three companies. That, that those are the ones that, again, big ideas, right? D disruptive industry, world changing. So you, you mentioned several of them, Snowflake, CrowdStrike, Datadog, Cloudflare. Um, when you said that, that for those kinds of companies that you're willing to assume market risk, what do you mean by that? I mean the last three months. Our skill set is finding a company like Amazon day one and then holding on through the market tribulations, right? Finding, so I, there's never been a day for me as an investor that I did not own Amazon. We bought Google you know, on its reverse auction and we have always owned Google. We've owned it through the uh, internet crash. We've owned it through the financial crisis. We've owned it through COVID crisis, right? And that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Most of challenges 
tend to be manageable, right? Human beings are really creative and rationality tends to prevail. And when we put our heads together, we, we tend to solve majority of the crises. So all of these things over time are passing and manageable. If you're buying high quality businesses whose intrinsic value is going to compound for a really long period of time, then your margin of safety on the purchase price is significantly larger than what is generally understood by the investing public. There are some things that are not manageable that you know very well. Uh, certainly, you know, one of them is uh, what has happened with China. At one point, you had Chinese companies were 22% of the uh, Barron Global Advantage Fund. It's now down to 3%. But you really got burned uh, by, uh, I guess we can call it regime risk in China. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. This is not an absentee business. This is not a set it and forget it portfolio. Mm -hmm. We think of risk in the context of probability of permanent loss of capital. And certainly what's happened in China, you know, in our opinion, has proven to be a, a significant permanent loss of capital. So. One of the risks in investing in emerging markets is obviously regulatory, right? The regulatory regimes are unpredictable and they can change the rules in such a way that uh, you can have permanent loss of capital. China has been the second most profitable geography for the Barron Global Advantage Fund in its history, second only to the United States, which of course is roughly half of all the global indexes and has been you know, at least half, if not more, of the fund's exposure mm -hmm. o o over the 10 years. 2021 is when it changed. Um, the Chinese government, it, it started as a benign crackdown on you know, large tech, where the government, you know, not unlike the government in Europe and in the United States, said that we're worried about a uh, competitive landscape, we're worried about these companies having too much power, and we're gonna change the rules. But unlike Western Europe and unlike the United States, where we're ruled by the system of laws and Law. courts and we have, you know, lots of remedies that, that, that these companies have, in China, th there are no such things. So one day the government decided that the entire education industry should not be for profit. Right? They, they want to control the message. They want to control what is being taught to the children. And this was a $100 billion space. And Tal Education, in particular, is the company that we own since the day it went public, that we've known very well, that we've met with, visited with, you know, and have owned for, you know, many years. And we ended up exiting the position and taking, you know, sizable loss in 2021. Although, again, I will point out that even after that loss, it was still either the second or the third most profitable investment that we have ever made. Mm -hmm. We are very worried about China. I've written to our shareholders that China's become a conundrum, I think about a year ago. And the investing environment is very challenging. And the first thing we wanted to do is make sure when we find ourselves in the hole, you stop digging, right? So we didn't, we didn't get from 22% to 3% by losing all that money. We sold more than half of our investments rather quickly. And then we sold more and we, we cut it down to basically three remaining names. The issue with China is, of course, it is the second largest economy in the world. Right. And it is the most populous country in the world. And it is almost impossible to be a global investor and not to not keep an eye 
on what's going on in China. So there's a precedent for you uh, to the ch- your China experience, and that is uh, much more personal as well, but also professional, is that you were born in Ukraine and you grew up in Russia and you spent summers in Ukraine with your uh, grandparents. So that's very close to home. It was home at one point. Um, and in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, you wrote to your shareholders. At that time, you had small positions in Russia, but you said that Russia had become uninvestable. Why? What led you to make that decision? And is it possible that you're going to make the same decision about China? So we were actually very excited about Russia at the time. It was about 3% of the strategy and growing. And we were doing a lot of work on it. And then, of course, the invasion happened. And I ended up taking a trip and meeting with a number of people and trying to understand what is Putin's endgame. And it was during those meetings and conversation, it became very clear that Crimea was just the start. And, you know, we have basically made a decision that we were sitting on a time bomb and that it wasn't if it was when uh, the, the campaign to recapture Ukraine, if you will, and to resurrect Soviet Union was going to happen. It would just be a matter of time until we wake up and... You know, there's Burbank and Yandex and, and, you know, Gazprom and all those mm-hmm. businesses. And it's not that they're going to be down 50% or 70%. They'll be halted and you won't be able to sell them. Right. And Which certainly it happened. Took, it six took years longer. Later. And so we, we turned it uh, non investable. We eliminated all of our Russian investments and we haven't touched any Russian company since then, since late 2014. The difference, of course, between Russia and China is size. The second largest economy in the world, one of the fastest growing economies in the world. We're talking about a country whose GDP had grown double digits for over 30 years. And so it is it is not a country that one can ignore, but it is entirely conceivable that it too will become uninvestable. So China for us today is where Russia was, right? We're at 3% which is right. where Russia was, oddly enough, in 2014. Mm-hmm. And, you know, could, could it go to zero? It could. Could it also go back to, you know, 8 10% of the fund? That, that could happen as well. It, it is work in progress. Alex, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. What would you have us all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio? Rivian. One of your largest holdings. We are big believers in the electric autonomous mobility. And of course, the, the, our firm has become somewhat synonymous, I think, with our investment in Tesla, where Ron Barron has been a very vocal advocate of the company for many years. Tesla's debut was not all that different from Rivian's, where the stock was all over the place. So we call it pattern recognition. We, we kind of know what the milestones are, what the goalposts are. We know how the company should be going about it. And, you know, we do a lot of company-specific research, and there's a lot to like about Rivian, in my opinion, in terms, you know, if you believe in this electric autonomous mobility. And so we're we're big fans. All right, we're going to leave it there. Alex Umansky, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack once again. Thank you for having me, Consuelo.
At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is follow your own rules about what is investable or not. Traditional market-based index funds are required to invest in the companies and countries in their benchmark indexes. Individuals are not. Most portfolio managers choose companies and countries based on the investment opportunities they offer. Individuals are free to apply other criteria as well, such as political risk and moral values. In totalitarian countries like Russia and China, where the rules and laws can be changed at a moment's notice, is the risk of losing money permanently too great? You decide. Individuals can also apply their moral values to investment choices. Russia's brutal, unprovoked war against Ukraine makes that decision clear-cut for many individual investors. In China, President Xi's regression to the Mao Zedong model of tyrant leader for life, his crackdown on Hong Kong and Chinese dissidents, and the persecution of ethnic minorities such as the Uyghurs are all reprehensible. Individuals are free to make the decision whether these events make China morally untenable to invest in. You can apply your personal values to your portfolios and sleep better at night because of it. Well, next week, the year's big investment themes with influential strategist and portfolio manager Rich Bernstein. In this week's extra feature, Alex Umansky discusses his decision way back in 2014 to sell his positions in Russia. What did he see then that we are witnessing now? Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.